Well, good morning. My name is Chad Donahoe. I'm one of the newer pastors here at Deer Creek. And so I realize uh, I've only, I moved here four months ago. So I've not met everyone. And this is my first time preaching. So I figure I'll, I'll do a brief introduction of myself. But I'm going to introduce myself based on the two most asked questions that I get from you all. The first one is, am I a church planter? And the answer is no, but I love that question because the vision of our church and the DNA of, of Deer Creek Church is church planting. And so you all, or, or many people assume any new pastor that comes here is a church planting pastor. But in my case, uh, I am here to stay Lord willing. And my roles here include, uh, I oversee the small groups and the welcome team, which includes like coming through the front doors, the greeters, the coffee bar, our ushers. By the way, I'm always looking for some new people to help serve. So come talk to me if you're interested. Um, I also help with our church planting, uh, you know, helping with our church's church planting uh, efforts and uh, as well as with the preaching. So, which is uh, this morning, my first time. By the way, so the last 18 years, lived in Lawrence, Kansas, so we moved here, um, moved here in May, and when I say we, my wife Tiffany, and I'll go from youngest to oldest, we brought with us a sophomore in high school, his name is Ty, we have a sophomore in college, uh, her name is Paige, she's at Creighton University, uh, actually right now, study abroad in Ireland, and then we have Quentin, who was our 21-year-old goes by Q. Q is in Dallas. And then our 23-year-old just moved here a few weeks ago. His name is Peyton. So they join us here. Um, and so for the previous 18 years uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, I, for most of that time, I was a college pastor at Grace uh, EPC. And then the last six months before moving here, I was the interim pastor at Grace. And uh, Again, moved here late May. Uh, love it here. So excited to be part of this church. Um, second question I get quite often is, am I a Chiefs fan? And at times it's more like, you're not a Chiefs fan, are you? So I want to actually answer that question for those, uh, those of you that are diehard Bronco fans. I realize this is a test of my character of how I answer this question. So, uh, yes, I heard somebody say careful. So here it is. Here it is. Am I a Chiefs fan? Let me put your fears to rest. I, like most of you, despise the Raiders. All right? So we are unified. Join me. Join me. And uh, actually, with that word of encouragement, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. We are in... Mark chapter 1, as we're, as we're continuing our series uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Before I read, I want to pray for our time in the Word this morning. So, my habit is to take one of Paul's prayers in his letters and to make it our own. So, my prayer for us this morning is out of Colossians chapter 1. So, Lord, as we come to your scriptures, I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, 
Strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience and with joy. So, Lord, help us to be a thankful people because you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. You've delivered us from the domain of darkness. You've transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, Lord, help us as we gather not to take these glorious truths for granted, but as we sit under your word, help us. Help us to grow as your disciples. Help us to grow as grateful people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, being Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So this passage this morning is fairly straightforward. Jesus is calling disciples to follow him. But where I want to focus this morning is what did this mean for the disciples back then? What does this mean for us now? What does growth as the Lord's disciples look like? So I want to begin just with a brief context behind this passage. Because right before our passage this morning... In verses 14 and 15, Mark records Jesus' words. Mark tells us that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, so picture the scene. Jesus declares the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe this good news of the gospel. Now, um, that statement uh, is going to turn heads of the people of that day. And the reason is God's people have been waiting. See, they've been conquered multiple times throughout their history. And right now they are under Rome's rule. And so they have been waiting and anticipating this, that when this day would come, that God would send another king, one like David, one who would conquer, and they can't wait to overthrow the Romans. So Jesus is causing quite a stir. And when he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is near, there is a buzz. There is excitement. Crowds are stirring. They're beginning to follow Jesus, and they're watching him closely. And what does Jesus do? After proclaiming, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, he begins by gathering fishermen. What? Jesus, uh, shouldn't you at least gather hunters because they have weapons, like spears, right? Because if you are going to come in power as a king, you need a powerful army. But that's not what Jesus is doing. This is a different king. This is a different kingdom. And so... This kingdom is not about human pride or power or prestige. 
This is a different kind of kingdom. And Jesus is on a mission, and he calls disciples to that mission, but think about those whom he calls. In fact, later on, the Apostle Paul will say this of them in 1 Corinthians 1, of, of those who Jesus calls. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is a different king and a different kind of kingdom. And at the heart of this story, at the heart of the Gospels, is a personal God who calls particular but very ordinary people to get caught up in his mission. And what's his mission? Jesus begins by calling fishermen. He calls Simon, who Jesus later renames Peter. He calls Andrew, Simon's brother. He calls James and John. And what does Jesus say to them? Verse 17, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. This is the mission of this kingdom. And it's likely that when Jesus called his disciples to go fish, so to speak, what he had in mind was Jeremiah 16. Now, I just want to, I'll summarize this chapter. Jeremiah 16, Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah was called to declare the word of the Lord to his people. And what Jeremiah is declaring is that God's people will face judgment, will face punishment because of their disobedience. And we see that that gets fulfilled by uh, Babylon conquering them and then uh, God's people being exiled into, exiled into Babylon. But Jeremiah is declaring that there is hope that God will eventually redeem his people. And then we hear this in Jeremiah 16, 16. Behold, I am sending for many fishers and they shall catch them. And that day that Jeremiah pointed to and the day that the other prophets pointed to has now arrived in its fulfillment in Jesus. He has called for disciples to come to him so that they can fish, so to speak. So here's the question for the morning. In this call to discipleship, that if we're in Christ, we're called to this discipleship, right? What does growth look like? What does growth as disciples look like? And I will name three things, three aspects of our discipleship this morning. One is we are called to confront our autonomy. The second one would be to submit to Jesus' authority. And the third one would be to get caught up in Jesus' mission. And so with that, the first one, our call as disciples to confront our autonomy what we find throughout the Gospels, and we see this in the Gospel of Mark over and over, Jesus is constantly confronting the autonomy of his disciples. Now, I'm using the word autonomy with great intentionality because that word alone, autonomy, if you break it down, it means self-law or self-rule. Okay, It's the sin of pride. And we see this played out in Genesis chapter 3. Now, last week, Daniel preached, and he mentioned Genesis 3. I'm going to mention this again because Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are so foundational 
for our understanding of what discipleship looks like, and especially this sin of autonomy. So if I can do this, if I can summarize Genesis 1 through 3, what we find is that in the very beginning, God gave Adam and Eve everything, everything for their delight. It's as if God was saying, you can have all this, all of creation, delight, but not that. Do not eat of that. The one prohibition was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And why? Because if they eat of that tree, Adam and Eve will know and experience evil and death. And God is protecting them from that. But what happens next is Satan slithers into the scene in Genesis chapter 3. And what Satan essentially does is say, hey, Adam and Eve, huddle up, huddle up. So you, Adam and Eve, should be very suspicious of God because he is holding out on you. He is holding out on you. And then we see this interplay, this dialogue between Satan and Adam and Eve where Satan says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? No. He said you can have all of it and delight, but not this one tree. But Satan's twisting his words, seeking to sow doubt as far as the character of God goes. And then Satan goes on to say, you will not, if you eat of this tree, you will not surely die, contradicting the command of the Lord. And then goes on a step further. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is tempting Adam and Eve. Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to play God in your own life? Don't you want to rule and reign over your own life? The answer for Adam and Eve is no, you shouldn't. You do not belong there. We do not belong in that place. That is God's place in our lives. But Adam and Eve, they ate of the fruit. The sin of autonomy, self-law, the sin of pride. One of my professors at Covenant Seminary sums up... I've, I've, sums up really well, I believe, Genesis chapter 3, when he says the sin of autonomy, what happened in the garden, is they doubted God's good character and they sought to build their own kingdoms. Doubted God's character, sought to build their own kingdoms. And we see this same sin of autonomy repeated continually in the scriptures. In fact, we see it a few chapters later at the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. Think about what God told Adam and Eve and then later Noah for their descendants. To be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That was God's command. And what was the earth to be filled with? It was to be filled with the glory of God. It was to be filled with disciples, essentially, who were faithful to the Lord. But instead, what happens in the Tower of Babel is the descendants of Adam and Eve, rather than spreading out and filling the earth to God's glory, they hunker down and they build a tower up into the heavens. The question is, do they belong in the heavens? No, they don't. This is pride, sin of autonomy. And further, they did this to seek to make a name for themselves, to make a name for themselves rather than a name for God. It's the sin of self. And humanity has been doing this ever since. And we as well get caught up in the sin of self. We've inherited it. If I could put it this way, 
Adam and Eve were created as lovers to perfectly love God and love neighbor. But what happened is that love turned inward towards the self, self-love, as opposed to loving God and loving neighbor. It's love of self. Self-centered, instead of focusing and centering our world on God, we focus on ourselves. And we see this in the disciples in the Gospel of Mark. At one point later on in the Gospel of Mark, we will find that they are arguing over who is the greatest. Who is the greatest of the disciples? They're excited about this, that Jesus is this coming king, and they are excited about the expectations of this kingdom. And in fact, at one point, two of the disciples, James and John, who in our passage Jesus called to follow him, right? James and John asked Jesus, Hey, when you come in power in your kingdom, can we sit on your right and on your left? I mean, how bold. And the the disciples all got really angry at that. Why? Not because they think James and John were out of line. It's because they want those seats as well. Right? It's, it's, It's the self. It's the desire to be in the center. The sin of self. But what does Jesus say? Right after this incident with the disciples... Jesus will tell his disciples, and this is the heart of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1045. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples uh, had a lot to learn. As one commentator put it, I like, I like uh, his statement here. He says this, The process of becoming disciples of Jesus is a slow and painful one for the twelve. The life to which Jesus calls disciples requires a fundamental change of perspective to have in mind the things of God rather than the self. Fundamental change of perspective. This was true of the disciples, but it's also true of us constantly we also need a fundamental change of perspective so often to have in mind the things of God rather than the things of self. Because we too play the game, don't we? Who's the greatest? So often comparing ourself with others around us, viewing our worth in that way as opposed to what's our worth according to God? Who are we in God's eyes? And we play the game, who is the greatest, when we seek to build our own little kingdoms, kingdoms of the self, where we put ourselves in the center. But if we're really going to play the game, who's the greatest, I want you to consider, uh, I want you to consider a quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. This is by uh, the author is Barbara Boyd. Now, this quote has some serious math, okay? So we've got to focus. Are we ready? Imagine that the distance from the earth to the sun, 92 million miles, was the thickness of one sheet of paper. Then the distance from the earth to the nearest star alone would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. The diameter of just our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is only a single speck 
one of an infant number of galaxies just into the part of the universe that we can see. She goes on to say this. If, as the Bible says, Jesus Christ holds all that together with just the word of his power, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, she goes on, is that the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant or your consultant? Of course not. If you are to relate to such a person, he will either be the absolute Lord of your life or nothing at all. Mark is not writing this gospel to say, wow, look at those disciples, how great they are. And Jesus, what a good assistant or consultant he played as they thought to build their own little kingdoms, right? Kingdoms of the self. No, what we find in the scripture is the call to confront our own autonomy. When we doubt God's good character, when we seek to build our own kingdoms, when we seek to go our own way, thinking our own way will live, uh, will, will lead to happiness, even if that means disregarding clear commands of Scripture. Right? We seek to build, we seek to build our own kingdoms when we think we really know better than God and want to place ourselves in the center. Do you know who belongs in the center of our lives? It is the one who the scriptures say is all-powerful, and that is not us. All-wise, and that is not us. All-good, perfectly good to his people. It is the Lord who deserves to run our lives. And this should put us in a humble posture as we continue to, as disciples, confront our sin of autonomy. Puts us in a humble posture. And it moves us to the next point. To the next, the next aspect of discipleship, which is submitting to Jesus' authority. So we could think of it this way. In the very beginning, right before my passage, I read in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus announced that the kingdom of, of heaven was near, the kingdom of God is near, and to repent and believe. So repent means turning away. What are we turning away from? Constantly. It's the sin of autonomy in our lives, of wanting to play God in our own lives. But then we are called to repent and believe. This next one, to believe, is submitting to Jesus' authority. And what do we find in Mark? That it is Jesus who has been given all authority. We see this clearly throughout the opening of Mark as he has authority over Satan and the demonic world. He has authoritative teaching that is astonishing and amazing people. He has authority over sickness as he is healing many. And he has authority to call the disciples and then authority to send the disciples out on the mission of proclaiming how great this king and this kingdom really is. So what does submission to Jesus' authority look like in our lives? Well, think about the disciples. When Jesus says to the disciples, follow me, what do they do? They leave everything and they follow him. Now, it's going to get a little tricky for them, but they started off well, right? To leave everything and to follow. What we're talking about is wholehearted devotion 
to the Lord. So what does growth look like? If I could, I have a uh, commentary. This is by one of my professors at Covenant Seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary. Dr. Hans Beyer wrote a, a theology of Mark. And in this book, he devotes a whole chapter to some qualities, uh, character qualities of a disciple. What does it mean to grow as a disciple? And he lists eight in particular, spends a whole time, uh, a whole chapter on these, that these eight qualities are the, one that ri- the ones that rise to the surface in the Gospel of Mark. So my question is, by show of hands, how many of you would like to hear these eight qualities? By show of hands, literally. Okay, the reason I had you raise your hands is they're going to be convicting, and so you asked for it. Okay? <laughs> You asked for it. They convicted me. Um, but before I go on to this, I want a, a couple of disclaimers. The first one is, with a convicting list, um, Jesus calls us where we are. He called the disciples exactly where they, where they were. And he grew them. And how does he grow us? He grows us through the power of his spirit. And he grows us in community. Right? And so... Uh, we grow in community, which is so important. Why Jesus calls his disciples, the Lord calls his disciples, to gather in community every Sunday to worship. Because on Sundays it is not our day, it is the Lord's day. He calls us to gather every Sunday in community because we need to grow as disciples. And beyond that as a church, what we uh, encourage are small groups Continual growth, and, and the reason we're pushing small groups, so I'm in charge of small groups. I will tell you, we don't push, I don't push small groups because I'm going to get a bonus at the end of the year, right? It is because I really believe how important it is for myself and all of us to grow in community, to grow as disciples. And what our small groups do is they sharpen us. They encourage us as we grow. And so the reality is uh, we need each other. So as you hear this list, also, we could think in terms of our church's uh, motto. It's been uh, part of our church since its beginning, right? We are not perfect and don't, dep- uh, don't pretend to be. So as we hear this list, um, if you feel like this list is convicting, well, <laughs> you're in the right church. And let's grow together. So with this, uh, Dr. Byer spends a whole chapter on these. I'm going to give a few sentences to each one. I just want to summarize them. The first quality is that of surrender. It's surrender. It is constantly seeing our need to open up our lives and, and leave everything and to follow him. It's surrender. Second quality is believing and trusting. And I like Dr. Byer's explanation here. He says this, discipleship for Mark is essentially a relationship with Jesus, not merely following a certain code of conduct. Fellowship with Jesus marks the heart of the disciple's life. And this fellowship includes trusting him, confessing him, taking note of his his conduct, following his teaching, being shaped by a relationship to him. Okay, this is all relational language. In other words... We're going to believe and trust in one who proves that they are trustworthy and and the person that we love, right? So oftentimes when I am struggling with my own um, understanding of God's character, right? Going back to Genesis 3, 
how Satan wants us to doubt God's good character. When I am struggling at times, God, how can you allow this? God, what are you doing? What do I need to do? What do we need to do in that moment? It's actually to look directly at Jesus as we see him in the Gospels and ask the question, is Jesus the kind of Lord that we can love and that we can follow and that we can entrust every aspect of our life to? And I think overwhelmingly in the Gospels, Jesus proves yes. Yes, he is. He is the absolute Lord. The only one that we can stake our whole lives on. The third one, the third character quality, prayer. This is growth away from self-sufficiency and towards dependence upon the Lord. And so as I mentioned prayer, if you're like me, you begin to feel guilty because the reality is none of us, all of us could grow in prayer, right? What we're not looking for, what I'm not talking about is uh, a perfect prayer life. But how about a growing intentional prayer life? So for me, I, uh, I have to use prayer cards. Because if not, uh, these prayer cards, uh, they uh, have various verses and people on them. And if I don't use prayer cards, my brain goes, woo, woo, all over the place. So my prayer cards keep me on track. Here's my first one. I intentionally put this in the stack. Every time I go to pray in the mornings, I read this. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Why did you doubt? The words of Jesus to the disciples. And then how about this one? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares. So our prayer life, I believe, will increase if we understand these realities. We can cast all anxieties because he actually cares. Growth in our prayer life. The fourth one, watching and guarding our hearts. And this, the idea is, I'll get to the one in the second, which talks about temptation outwardly. But this one, guarding our hearts, is guarding against the autonomous self that wants to well up within us. So guarding, watching our hearts, Jesus constantly warned his disciples. The fifth one, humility. Humility, growth in humility. What does humility uh, towards God look like? actually looks like a life of repentance. Remember hearing a pastor years ago say, uh, what, how do you mark spiritual growth? That the, time, uh, that the time between when you commit a sin and you confess that sin to God continues to shorten. Right? Humility, understanding our need to relate to and confess to the Father. Humility. Also, towards each other, it is... Um, it is considering others more than ourselves. It is serving others. It is, uh, if you think about it, it is, it's the game. It's not playing the game. Who's the greatest? Now, uh, the Apostle Peter, uh, it's interesting to think about his life because Peter himself in the Gospels, if you think about when they were the disciples playing the game, who's the greatest? can imagine Peter's like, well, I'm the rock. You know, who's the actual greatest of the disciples? Peter later on will write this. This is the mature, spirit-filled Peter who says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourself under God. 
So, by the way, are you enjoying this list so far? Because we have three more. You want me to stop? Nope, I'm going to keep going. All right, next one. The sixth one is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And the point is this. If we have received the grace of God, if we have received forgiveness, we should be quick to forgive others. I know it gets complicated with uh, hurt feelings and uh, abuse in the past and various stuff. I know there's a lot more to this conversation, but the heart of it is this. If we've received the grace and forgiveness of God, we are called to lavish grace and forgiveness on others. The seventh one, withstanding temptation, Jesus constantly warned his disciples about temptation. And those, that's temptation from the outside world coming in. So I want to summarize or, or sum up some of these, especially this last one of temptation, with this story. Okay, so when I lived in Kansas, we lived on five acres, okay? When we moved to Colorado, we got a house with five feet of backyard, okay? Now it only takes five minutes to mow, so that's all right. But back in my house in Kansas, when we first got it, I was really excited about these five acres. And so I went and walked the acres, uh, and I noticed in the very center of our backyard was a locust tree. It was really tiny, really tiny locust tree, right? If you don't know about trees, a locust tree, they're the ones that grow big, and they have those nasty, long uh, thorns, okay? So I remember thinking this was a baby locust tree. I remember thinking, we just took possession of our house. I should cut that locust tree down right now before it becomes a problem. But of course, I waited years, right? So the locust tree got bigger, got thornier, got nastier. And then I noticed one day as I was looking out, a hornet's nest had made its way into the base uh, around the locust tree. And of course, the locust tree is an area of the yard that I needed to mow. So I'm like, okay, I get on my mower to mow around the locust tree. Now, there's a few more difficulties, and I promise you I'm not embellishing any of this story. <laughs> my riding mower that I had at the time was broke, so it only steered to the right. <laughs> so in order to mow the yard, I would have to place the mower in the center of the backyard and start, turn to the right, and go in circles <laughs> outward to mow the yard. Okay, sure to our neighbors, I probably look like the village idiot, you know, NASCAR on the mower. What's Chad doing? Anyway, so I, when I would mow it, always have to time, because I had a little bit of play of how far to the right I could steer. So if this is the locust tree, I would have to angle it to where the mower would clear the locust tree rather than going right into the middle of it. So I am mowing at one point, and I'm, I have the right angle. I'm about to clear the tree and the hornet's nest that's right there, and it my mower stops right in front of the hornet's nest, right against the tree, because it ran out of gas. So then I go back, and I get gas, and I fill up the mower, and I'm ready to start it up again. But because, and I'm no mechanic, but a guy explained to me later of how this all works, I had a solenoid that was out on my lawnmower, which means I pretty much had to hotwire my lawnmower by taking a screwdriver and touching metal to the solenoid while I'm trying to start it, which is creating sparks, which I had just filled up my mower with gas, which makes me a little anxious. 
Meanwhile, trying to start the mower, the hornet's nest is right there, but I don't want to disturb the hornet's nest because I'm allergic to stings and I don't ever know where my EpiPen is. So all of this is taking place, and as I'm trying to start my mower, finally it dies on me because I happen to kill the battery. So I walk away that day. You know what my thought is? Why didn't I cut the thorn tree down years ago? Why didn't I just get rid of it, get it out of my life? So if you could read my mind and know where I'm going with this. Um, what is the thorn tree or the potential thorns that are already growing in your life that are seeking to choke you out as the Lord's disciples? Do you remember when Jesus talked about to his disciples the various soils? One of the soils, the third soil, was the one where thorns sought to, sought to spring up and choke out the faith of the disciples. And the question is, where are you already in danger? Where am I in danger? Maybe not of losing our faith, so to speak, but to be hindered in our fruitfulness as the disciple. Jesus mentioned in his parable of the sower, uh, of the, of the sower he talked about the cares of the world. He talked about the deceitfulness of riches. And in Mark's gospel, and this is in chapter 4, is this parable, also talked about desire for other things. Or the gospel of Luke talks about the pleasures of life. And so the question for us as disciples are, what is it that we care way too, what is it that we, I should be more personal, what is it that you care way too much about according to the world that you worry way too much about and it's so it focuses your life on yourself as opposed to the things of the Lord? Or with the deceitfulness of riches, let me just read 1 Timothy 6, 6. It says, now there is, Great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So on this point, deceitfulness of riches that Jesus warned his disciples about. Maybe here's a test. Um, as disciples, do you give generously? Do you give faithfully and do you give cheerfully? That's what the scriptures call us to. And it's a good test to know where is our heart with the Lord as his disciple. The last one, desire for other things. You can name so many other things here. The desire for idols. The idols that play up in our life. What's an idol? Anything that we put above God in our life for our hope, our security, our satisfaction, our happiness, our joy. So many things. Idols. Um, the, uh, the warning of addictions. So many things that we might crave and that can take control over our lives, right? Not prioritizing spiritual disciplines would be another one. Getting so caught up in the world around us 
that we neglect the very things that help us to submit ourselves under the Lord's authority. The disciples left everything and followed. So the question on this is, as I was naming these things, is there anything that came to your mind that you need to leave immediately because it's seeking to choke out your faith and your effectiveness? I want to move to our last, uh, the last one on this list, and this actually coincides with my last point. Number eight is confessing Christ. Growth in a disciple means confessing Christ. Now, so this would take us to our third point, which is what does it look like to grow, to get caught up in Jesus' mission? Okay, and for this point, I want to read, uh, turn to Mark chapter 2. If you have your fancy Mark journals, and by the way, we'll have more next week because every time we buy more, uh, they're gone, which is great. You all are taking them. The Mark journals, it's page 14 if you have one. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I just want to read this and make a few brief comments. This is another call, or this is a call from Jesus to another disciple. Here it is. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he was reclining at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if people were confused when Jesus called fishermen to follow him, now they're really confused. Because he just called a tax collector named Levi. Okay, by the way, some of the Gospels uh, will refer to him, Levi, by a different name as Matthew. Okay, same guy. So the problem with tax collectors is everybody hated them. Because they were hired by the Roman government to collect taxes, but they always took more than what the Roman government required, which means essentially the tax collectors were stealing from their own people. Needless to say, they were not popular. Okay? So Jesus calls Levi, this tax collector. Levi leaves his job as a tax collector, follows Jesus. And then Mark gives us the account of when Levi holds this dinner party at his house and he invites Jesus along with many other tax collectors and sinners. And I put sinners in quote because from the Pharisees' perspective, anyone who did not follow the Pharisees' instruction as far as the law of Moses was considered a sinner. So the Pharisees looked down on the others. So what we have here is... Jesus is eating with these sinners. The Pharisees are disgusted. They ask the the disciples, why is he eating with them? And Jesus' response is profound, and it's at the heart of his mission. He says, those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, he's saying, I came not to call those who look at them as self-righteous, 
I came to call sinners. And what we see with Jesus is as he is at this party, he is not there to be the life of the party, so to speak. He is there to bring life to the party, to bring eternal life to sinners. And that's what God calls us to get caught up in as well. So here's the way uh, I want to I end here, which is two visuals I have in my mind. One is, when I think about my life as a disciple, what has God called me to? And I'll say you as well. I see myself standing in between two gardens. Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2. And Revelation 21 and 22, which is the, uh, let's just say, the glorious garden of the new heavens and new earth. Standing between two gardens, but in a sinful world. And what does Jesus call for our lives as disciples? To constantly grow in a fallen world. To be faithful to him. To seek to grow in holiness. And if I can name these that I named earlier, the the aspects. To continue to surrender our lives to him. To believe and to trust in Jesus no matter what is going on around us in our circumstance, to pray, to guard our hearts, to grow in humility, to grow in forgiveness, and to withstand temptation. But that's not our only calling. There's another one. We also stand between a holy God, and I'm pointing at the cross, and sinful humanity. And you all represent the sinful humanity right now, okay, in this illustration We stand before a holy God and sinful humanity of a humanity that desperately needs to hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus came not for the righteous, but he came for the sick. And God has given us this calling to go fish, to go fish. Here's my other, uh, the other analogy I would use is I look at it like this. Just imagine satellite imaging, right, looking down. And let's just say we're looking down at Denver. But when we look down, what we see is anybody who's a Christian in the Denver area just glows brightly, right? Satellite looking down. So here's what's really cool. On a Sunday morning, what you would see, for instance, at Deer Creek is this concentration of glowing, you know, these glowing lights. High concentration, Deer Creek Church. But then Monday through Saturday... This high concentration is dispersed out and spread out. Different neighborhoods, different schools, different places of work, different places to serve, different hobbies. And God calls us, as we, it is God, as disciples, uh, what, what it means to be a disciple is one who is sent out. God's sending us out, and what's he sending us out to do? To represent him to the world, to proclaim his goodness to the world. So what we do is we pray for opportunities to share with people the hope that we have, the only hope in Christ, pray for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And what do we do? How do we live it out? Get to know our neighbors, invite them into our home, invite people into small groups, invite people to our church. God spreads the gospel and he does it through his disciples. Here's another picture I love. Here's this thought. Um, that a year, from, uh, a year from now, some of you won't even be with us. And then two years from now, some of, others of you won't be with us. And you know why? Because a year from now, some of you, and you don't even know this yet, God will call to go help the Watsons, JP and Carrie Ann, to go plant a church in Inglewood. 
then a few more years from now, God will call some of you to go with the Raps, David and Jennifer and their family, to go plant a church in Golden. And I love the idea of this uh, satellite imagery of these churches, these lights glowing Sunday mornings in Inglewood and, and, and Golden in the future, and then spreading out into those communities as the gospel continues to spread. The point is this. Whether we are at Deer Creek Church or going with other church plants, what does it look like for us to take serious the call to go fish? That God has called us to this. Now, I know it's intimidating, right? The idea of sharing our faith is really intimidating. What's the, but what can we take comfort in? God is with us. He goes before us. The Gospel of Mark says that Jesus called his disciples to become fishers of men, become. God is at work in our lives and can use us. And then here's the last thing I'll share. This verse from Acts 14, I take great comfort in this. This is uh, Acts 14, as the disciples are bearing witness to the Lord. Now when they, the religious leaders, saw the boldness of the disciples and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That is our call as disciples. We are with Jesus. And as we continue to grow in Jesus... He will use us in the world around us. And to that end, let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would use us as your people. I pray that you would use our church, that with our efforts uh, to shine and to proclaim the gospel, that we would be effective to the communities around us. Pray as individuals that as you send us out these doors, that we would seek to be faithful to you and to your calling. I do pray that we would increasingly, as your disciples, surrender our lives, that we would believe and trust, that we would be people of prayer, that you would help us to guard our hearts, grow us in humility, grow us as people who forgive others. Pray that you would help us to withstand temptations. And I do pray, gospel would go forth powerfully, that through this church, through church plants as well, that we would see people come into faith in our glorious Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.